And it was the wake up call that I needed, that voice of reason of saying, hey, you really don't need to spend more than you make. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. And first things first, let's check in with my wonderful co-host, Cody. How's it going? Oh, wonderful co-host. Thanks, Justin. But, you know, just enjoying life. This last weekend, I had a beer Olympics, so you can imagine that was very financially friendly, and I learned a lot about financial independence. No, I'm just kidding, but it was a lot of fun. <laughs> How about you, man? <laughs> I've just been destroying all these free events in Boston, which is just another reason why I love living in a big city. So on the 8th, I found just this random invite to a kind of a few tech companies putting together this speaking event, and they had free food and drinks, which was awesome. And then on the 10th, I got to go on some free deep sea fishing. So, you know, it really helps take the edge off the the rent costs up here. And speaking of like, you know, how you choose where to live and how you structure your finances... Our guest today has an awesome insight because they actually just became financially independent, but I don't want to give away their whole story. Let's let Kim take it away. During the gap year between my junior and senior year of college, I took a year off to work at Disney World, and they have a college program where you get some credit, but I really just wanted to take a break because I was so burned out from studying engineering and I didn't have any experience with budgeting beforehand. I was on a full scholarship in college and there was always extra money. So it had never been something I needed to worry about as an adult. But once I was on my own for that year, I didn't have the scholarship money coming in and I was working a minimum wage service industry job, paying all my own bills for the first time. So Long story short, the expenses were higher than the income for that year. It was an awesome year, (laughs) tons of fun. I learned a lot of lessons, but I went back to school for my senior year with $20,000 car loan on a brand new SUV (laughs) and about $10,000 worth of credit card debt. All right, Kim, so just before we get like too deep into that's a very you know interesting part we're definitely going to dig into like the car loan and the credit card debt i'd be curious as a fellow engineer myself what was like that thought process of why you even went down that route like why did you choose engineering what specialty of engineering did you choose what did you foresee your life being like coming into it like as a freshman good question i actually didn't start out in engineering i started in geology i was interested in environmental science And I looked at the list of majors at my undergrad college, and the only one that had the word environmental in it was the environmental geology track. So I said, that sounds like a good good path to go down. And I got a scholarship for geology. I took one semester of courses, including the general requirements for engineering, like calculus and physics and chemistry. And what changed my mind was I had a math professor who came to me after class one day and she said, you are too good at math to not be doing engineering. You need to switch. And I thought that was interesting because she didn't tell me to switch into math. (laughs) (laughs) She told me to switch into engineering. So I did second semester, sophomore year, and I had no idea what I was doing. 
we had a general engineering course where they teach you pretty basic mechanics, your way around a toolbox and basic measurements and, and things like that, that I never really use on the job anyway. But it wasn't until sophomore year when I actually learned what an engineer did for a living, because I'd never met one growing up. But I thought, I like math. This is fun. Statics is fun. These are interesting courses. And I like the people in my classes because they all seem to take college seriously. So I don't regret it. I just really didn't know what I was doing when I went into it. And so those first few years after college, you do have some debt. And it seems like you have at least somewhat of a grasp of personal finance and you know you should be budgeting. You probably shouldn't be spending more than you're earning. Could you kind of talk about that process? Just like getting out of debt? Did you formulate a game plan or what did that look like? All right. So the big turnaround was coming back from that gap year. Senior year in undergrad, I remember sitting down with a friend who I met through a previous internship and they were on track financially. And they said, have you heard about this guy, Dave Ramsey? And I said, no, no, no. So I, I read a copy of, I think it was the Total Money Makeover from the library. And it was the wake up call that I needed that voice of reason of saying, hey, you really don't need to spend more than you make. You're in college, live it up, enjoy the broke college student lifestyle. It's okay if you don't have cable because no one really does. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember during that gap year, I remember being up in the middle of the night because I, I always had a pretty clear grasp on interest rates and how these things were adding up. But it was more of the psychology behind it of why I was spending so much that I had never really talked about with any of my friends or family. So I knew how the math worked, but I didn't know about the motivations behind it. And I remember I made this spreadsheet that had a list of all of my credit cards in a cascading order. And I would, I would stay up all night staring at it and saying, I'm going to be working forever to pay these off. Oh, my gosh. And when I finally got back to college for my senior year, I sat down with my friend, we worked through a budget, and it was really vulnerable to, to tell someone, this is how much debt I have, this is how out of control I went, right? But it was also a really good reckoning for me because I knew never again, you know, I'm never, I'm never going to carry a credit card balance again once these are paid off. I'm never going to lease or I'm never going to finance a car again once this car is paid off. So I made a plan. And then I went to grad school right after that and met my now husband. And he used to tease me. He would say, well, why don't you just pay it off every month? And I said, well, because I didn't have the money to pay it off every month. <laughs> like, it just <laughs> wasn't there. Um, but he didn't understand because he'd never been in debt before. But he was always just a naturally frugal person. So I remember on our first date, we went to the Dollar Tree and I was so in love. And <laughs> you know, he, he impressed me about how little he cared about what anybody else was doing around him. Did you say a date at the Dollar Tree? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> well, at that point, we, we were in grad school. We went to Stanford. And it was so intense that literally any reason to get off campus was a date. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I remember that spring break we were celebrating paying off my car loan. We took a vacation to the beach and we, we've celebrated along the way. Every time I, if I paid off a credit card or if I paid off a car or pay off my student loans, there was always kind of a big vacation associated with it. So it was something to look forward to. 
so you talking about like the psychology, which is, you know, I think a lot of times a very overlooked part of this for a lot of people is how important the psychology piece is. So kind of stepping back a little bit, I'd be interested if you can remember, like putting yourself back in the shoes of the person who was acquiring all this debt, who was running up credit cards, who was buying a new car, like in the moment while that's happening, you know, what do you remember? Like, what do you remember thinking? Like, this is okay to do this because blank. Like, what was it about acquiring the debt? How are you comfortable with it? Because, you know, some people are, are never comfortable taking on debt. So curious if you could walk us through that part. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, now I am not comfortable taking on debt. It's almost a religious aversion to debt at this point. But back then I was 20 years old, turning 21. I had just finished a really, really long stretch. Junior year in engineering is the hardest year, right? You're taking all your most advanced classes at the same time. And I felt like I had earned a little bit of a break from being so focused and intentional and ambitious. So I wanted to just go nuts for a year. And so when I was in Orlando, I remember, I mean, there's so many opportunities there for spending on entertainment, world-class restaurants, obviously the theme parks. And I remember in the back of my head thinking, one day I'll get a good job and I'll pay this off. This is a short-term splurge. I mean, it had a time limit on it. I was only there for a year, right? But I guess the, the big thing was keeping up with not the Joneses, but keeping up with the person I was dating at the time, who I met a man when I was down there who had a full-time job and was already working as an engineer. So he had a full-time salary to spend, and I wanted to keep up and be able to go do fun things with him. But it was a whole different level of spending from what I was used to. Like I, I didn't used to go on airplanes for weekend vacation trips. But that was normal for this person. So I would take on debt to buy plane tickets to go to California for the weekend. And I remember thinking, wow, this is amazing. It's it's so fun to just do what I want and not worry about the consequences. So then moving back forward into your story, so you meet your now husband and he's an engineer as well, correct? Yes. Okay. So you're both engineers. You're both making pretty good money. What was like this strategy with the debt? Was it just a war path where you threw everything you got at it and you just got out of debt as fast as possible? Or what did those next few years after you graduated look like? It was 100% my debt. He had none. He had a full fellowship for graduate school. And so I knew I didn't want to go into a marriage with this debt. I had had some family experience before where family members getting married and then finding out later that there's some financial baggage associated with that person. And the way I explained it to my husband was I said, I want to be able to stand on my own two feet before we walk down the aisle. Like, I don't want you to feel like you're getting some sort of bait and switch (laughs) where you marry (laughs) me. And then you find out later, oh, this girl's a hot mess. She's got so many money problems. So for me, it was I want to get married and I wouldn't even let him propose until the debt was gone. So we lived pretty frugally. We lived in a little 500 square foot rental house, one bedroom, one bathroom. You could, you could vacuum the whole thing from one outlet. It was great, (laughs) but it was, you know, dirt cheap and I could ride my bike to work, which was very rare in Orlando. (laughs) I got teased about that a lot. 
but we kept our lifestyle pretty similar to what we had been doing in college. And I think I calculated, because I was doing my 401k contributions to get the match, but I think I calculated back then I was probably saving about 35% of my take-home pay. I mean, when I say saving, I mean putting it into the student loans, right? Yeah. Because the student loans and the credit card debt, they all got rolled into one when I graduated. So to celebrate paying off all of my debt, we took a trip to Key West, and that's where he proposed. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and his parents didn't even know that story until we've married for like 10 years. So one thing I feel like I notice a lot of with people who get started with Dave Ramsey is there's a point where they kind of outgrow those fundamentals and, you know, they kind of go beyond that. So I'd be curious to hear what that was like. Like, you know, as you get married, you're you're getting serious about paying down this debt. You've paid all this debt off. At what point did you or have you outgrown those kind of Dave Ramsey principles? And where did you kind of diverge off of his teachings? I still recommend him for beginners. I've met a lot of friends who believe that it's normal to live paycheck to paycheck. And as long as you can afford the minimum monthly payment, you can get whatever you want in life. And those are the same friends that when they lose a job, everything falls apart. So for my friends in that situation, I, I still recommend Dave Ramsey's Baby Steps. The, I guess the first time that I split off from the Baby Steps was when it came to travel rewards. Because I am comfortable at this point using credit cards and paying them off every month. I have the income to do that now. But in college, I didn't. So I literally cut up the credit cards in college. I remember that. It. I think that's part of the experience, too. I think it's part of the ritual to say, I'm done with this. I'm done with this <laughs> lifestyle and these bad choices. And I think once you have paid off your debt, I think you've earned the right to give yourself the chance to try it out again. To try, Not to try out debt again, but to try out experimenting with travel hacking and travel rewards. Because you've proven that you're organized. Absolutely. And so Travel Rewards is a great kind of gateway off of Dave Ramsey. I love Travel Rewards. Justin does as well. He is uh, notorious for taking advantage of the lounges and just eating like $100 worth of food every time he goes there. But Travel <laughs> Rewards does not equal financial independence. So was there a point where you're like, if we keep going down this path, we can retire a whole lot earlier than the traditional narrative tells us we can? Yes. I had always received good financial advice from managers and HR representatives at, at work, but it was never super aggressive. It was basically contribute the amount to get the match or, you know, maybe up to 10%, right? So I went along with that. I, I would eventually get to a point where I was maxing out my 401k and an IRA every year. And it was not a super big stretch when you have two engineering salaries and you're living together, right? But when we finally realized hey, we, we can choose our retirement date. We can, you know, chart our own path. It was, we were sitting on the couch with a newborn baby and my husband got two weeks off of work for paternity leave and then he had to go back to work. And so during those first two weeks, we had just recently discovered the FIRE community online with Mr. Money Mustache. And I think the first finance blog I read was called 20-something Finance. And that somehow led me down the road to finding the fire blogs. And so I, I did the math really, really quickly, like on my laptop there on the couch. And I said, babe, if we just keep doing what we're doing, 
we can retire when we're 35. And we were, I think, 29 at the time. And he said, are you serious? And he he double-checked, right, because he's an engineer. And he, <laughs> he, he back-checked all the calculations. And he's like, you know, I think you're onto something because I don't really think we need to change our lifestyle much from the way we're living right now. And And he said, well, if we can do it, then shoot, let's just do it. <laughs> like, let's plan for that. <laughs> Like, I'd be curious to unwrap the, when you said, like, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. So the savings rate that you had that was going to lead to you being able to retire at 35, was it mostly a function of like a really high income or, you know, what steps were you taking to really reduce your spending and what was your spending looking like? So it was a little bit of both. He had a pretty steady job at an aerospace company. And I worked at an HVAC firm. So we both had day jobs. And I had, at this point, when we were sitting on the couch making that decision, I had been freelancing for the past two years in the green buildings industry. I guess we should back up a little bit more. Let's back it up. That's, <laughs> that's, kind of a, that's kind of a key part of it. So we knew when we got engaged that I wanted to be at home with our kids And I also knew that I didn't want to stop working. So I I knew I wanted to do something from home with the kids. So we said, okay, let's go ahead and start living our budget based off of only one of our incomes. And while we're doing it, let's make it the smallest one, which is my day job, right? Because he was paid higher than I was. So that was that was not a super stretch for us. I think at the time I was making like $67,000 a year in Florida. So not not too bad. So we saved 100% of his income. And then for two years, we saved 100% of my moonlighting income. This was nights and weekends for two years that I was working. And that enabled us to pay off our mortgage about a month after our daughter was born. So that took out a big chunk of what we needed to spend and pretty much launched us onto this fire trajectory where we said our cash flow needs are very, very low month to month and we're going to be able to do this. So to dig into the numbers a little bit, if you feel comfortable sharing, you don't have to share exact numbers, but so I'm guessing you guys are like in the mid single six figures, like the, I don't know, like 150K to 200K range combined. And then it seems like you're spending like, I don't know, somewhere between like 60, like around 60K a year and plus your side hustling. One, could you talk about and just confirm if those are even remotely accurate numbers? And two, could you talk a little bit more about the side hustle? Because I still don't think I know exactly what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was low to mid six figures. He had really, really good benefits. And then the freelancing. So my moonlighting job, I met a manager at a sustainable buildings conference who was looking for help with certifying projects across the country under different rating systems. And it was all going to be remote work, but they were looking for someone who had that day job experience working in the field. And I said, sure, let me give it a try. This is, this is what I'm interested in. And to me, it never felt like work right? Because I was already working pretty hard in my day job and I wouldn't have taken on a moonlighting job that felt really challenging. I mean, draining challenging. So I always told people it was such an exciting job, but I felt like I was getting paid to do homework in my favorite class. 
Um, but as far as you know, income wise, it got it started out kind of slow because it wasn't an hourly rate job. It was you get paid by the task. And so the more you do it, the faster you get and your effective hourly rate gets gets better and better. And by the time I quit my day job, I was earning more in the moonlighting gig than the day job. Oh, wow. And how long of a period was that again? Like how long did it take you to go from getting started to where it actually was making more than your full-time job? Two years. Two years? That's incredible. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I remember when I was pregnant and I asked my husband, you know, what are your honest feelings about me leaving my day job and doing this? And he said to me, I'm okay if you don't make any money at all, or if you only make like $20,000 a year, like this is our plan. You're going to be home with our kids. Like you do what you want to do, work as much as you want to feel good. And getting that support from him emotionally gave me the, like the ramp that I needed to really just crank it out. And I think in my best year, I made over $200,000. Just in the side hustle? Yeah. Wow. Okay. That turned to a main hustle real quick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I had dropped the day job by that point. What kind of hours were you putting in when it met the same as your normal day job? So like if you were putting in 40 hours a week in your normal day job to make 50,000, how many hours was it taking you to hit that same number on the side hustle? Between 20 and 30. Okay. So you hit, not only did you completely cover your normal income with the side hustle, but you could do so in a little more than half the time. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. We used to call it dollars per stress. There wasn't the stress of driving into work and sitting in a cubicle with people that I didn't really get along with and et cetera, et cetera. I would be curious if you ever, it ever crossed your mind to kind of get your husband up to speed on this and you both do this. So you both have a completely flexible schedule, making really good money and just screw all the traditional work. You know, that came up a couple of times because he took a lot of the same sustainability courses that I did in college, but he didn't have the specific credential that you needed to do this job. He worked in the aerospace industry instead of the buildings industry. So it's a different kind of training that you do, but he did eventually quit his day job and start his own consulting gig, which he's still doing. That's awesome. All right. So let's take us back to 29 year old Kim. You're on the computer, you're building your spreadsheet, you're super pumped. You're like, Hey, Hey babe, like we can retire in six years from now. And then all of a sudden you quadruple your income and you're making like $200,000 doing this side hustle thing. Like what did that feel like? And how fast did that accelerate your path forward to financial independence? It was huge. I remember feeling it was crazy because I was doing a job that I loved. I was working with clients that I had a lot of respect for and that, that we all treat each other very well. And I was having the time of my life and I had this little baby at home. I knew that it wasn't something that I wanted to do at that pace forever because deadlines would creep up. And anytime I would have a stressful day at work, I would immediately take my daughter and go to her daycare. (laughs) I was like, I need some help. I need some help. And I think we got her into preschool when she was about one and a half years old. So for that first year and a half, it was so hard because, you know, I'm basically working when she's asleep. So I'm getting up at four in the morning to work for a couple hours. And then I'm working for an hour at a time or even 30 minutes at a time when she's taking a nap and then staying up late and working after she goes to bed. 
And we, we got to a point where we did the math. I still have the business card that I did this little calculation on where I said to my husband, let's look at your hourly rate and let's look at my hourly rate, which effectively was about three times as high because I was self-employed, right? I wasn't having to cover the overhead of my boss's, boss's, boss's salary and benefits. We did the math and I said, if you go part-time and cut your hours in half, that's going to free up an extra 20 hours a week that I can work and you can spend with our daughter and we will make more money. And he didn't believe me, but I showed him. And then a year later, our accountant didn't believe me. And I showed her, (laughs) I said, I I predicted this. Like I knew this was going to happen. He was able to go part-time down to 20 hours a week and still keep his health insurance. So he did that for one year and then he quit altogether. Okay, so you, you've sat down, you've written out the math, you've calculated everything, 29 years old. Now, that was six years ago. And I'm curious, since all this has happened, your husband's quit, you've built this side business that is so successful. How is that like folding into the life with your with your daughter now that she's, you know, getting a little older? And how do you see that playing out like as she's in school? Like, you know, I've heard some parents say, well, I want to homeschool them so that now I can bounce around the country or the globe. Or are you planning on both being location independent from your work and being financially independent altogether, but still keeping kind of a traditional lifestyle where your kids in the one school and you're living in the same neighborhood? We definitely prefer more traditional home life around the academic calendar. (laughs) We like having summers off to go travel. We have an RV and we travel last summer. I think we were in it for about six weeks out of a 10 week summer. But as far as homeschooling, we do supplemental homeschooling. So essentially, our daughter, she's going into first grade and she's reading at a third grade level and she's doing first and second grade math. So she's a little bit ahead of the curve, but they don't actually separate the kids out like that until about third grade. So we do stuff with her at home to help kind of keep that flame burning But as far as location independence, you know, when my husband quit his full-time job in Florida, he quit in, I think it was like March of the year that he quit. And we, we had decided when he went part-time that we were going to leave Florida when he quit. We were ready to get out. We, We didn't like the big city of Orlando. We didn't like the heat in the summer and the crowds. And so we knew we were going to move and we moved about two weeks after he quit his day job to Southern Oregon. And we had a a pretty nice lifestyle there for about two years and then decided we need to move again because this place is too expensive. Um, It's it's not exactly early retiree friendly. The town that we landed in was essentially a wealthy San Francisco retirement community. And that's not really a good place to build wealth for the young family. So we decided we were going to move back to a state that didn't have state income tax like we had been used to in Florida, right? And we made a spreadsheet of all the criteria that we cared about as far as we didn't want to be in a big city. We didn't want a lot of heat, so Texas was off the list. We wanted skiing. Our daughter is, she's probably going to be a competitive skier, at some point, she's she's really into it. So we needed to be close to mountains, which really limits your options in tax-free states. 
there's like one town in Nevada where you can ski. So <laughs> we went there and yeah, we, we went everywhere. We went to, this was all this year, by the way, like beginning in March, <laughs> we, we did this crazy, crazy whirlwind, Alaska, Florida, Tennessee, Nevada, and Wyoming. Wait, so this is 2019? Yeah, this oh, year. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> oh, and also Washington State. But we, I mean, we had a process, right? So tax optimization was really important. That was why we actually ruled Washington State off the list, because although they don't have a state income tax, they do have an estate tax. So mm. when you pass away, your estate gets taxed. So we ended up in Wyoming, right? No state income taxes, got the Rocky Mountain lifestyle, right? Denver's a really hot spot right now, and we're two hours away for a fraction of the price. I've never lived in the Midwest before. I, I consider this the Midwest. If you listen to anyone's voice here, it's the Midwest. And it's a different change of pace from growing up on the East Coast and then living on the West Coast as an adult. And it's something I really, really enjoy with a young kid. So something that I've noticed is obviously you both are super calculated with all your decisions as two engineers should be. And so geo arbitrage was something that it looks like you took a lot of kind of mental thought into. You made a spreadsheet naming all the places you wanted to live, exactly the criteria that you were looking for. Another topic, and I know you've talked about this before and we chatted about this, is health insurance. And something that you did know earlier in the episode was that your husband had the greatest benefits ever at this job, but now he does not have this job and you're freelancing. So what in the world did you do for like things like health insurance and other things that go along with having a normal W-2 job? So I had a mentor who worked with me at one of my previous day jobs and went out on her own. And I had seen her options for you know, buying your own private health insurance. And this was pretty shortly after the Affordable Care Act went into place. So same set of rules, right? And she made it look like it wasn't this big, scary thing, right? It, it's 2019. We're able to buy our own benefits. So the story of what we wound up doing was he quit his job in March. And for about a month, I think we were on a short-term health insurance plan until we got settled in Oregon at our new house. And at that point, we did a regular Affordable Care Act or a regular healthcare.gov plan where we had a high deductible plan with an HSA option and my company reimburses it. So it's a business expense for my company, right? So you get a little bit of a tax break from that, which is nice. But as far as health insurance, we, we're pretty low consumers of health care. Like I go to the doctor for flu shots and pap smears and that's about it. <laughs> like, we don't really go very often. We don't have pre-existing health conditions and this and that. So we had about eight months on a regular plan. And then we decided in 2018 to try HealthShare. So we went with Liberty HealthShare. And what we liked about it was, so since it's not health insurance, they can be selective with the pool of people that they cover. So they don't cover if you're a smoker, they don't cover if you have, you know, chronic health conditions like high blood pressure and diabetes, et cetera. They don't cover things like if you get in a drunk driving accident, right? Risky behaviors. And we said, we don't really engage in any of that stuff. So this sounds like a good plan for us. And it was pretty affordable. I think it was about $450 a month for a family of three. And the way it works is you just go to the doctor and say, I don't have health insurance. 
um, self-pay. So you you pay right there at the counter, and they usually give you a discount for paying up front. And then you reimburse yourself through Liberty HealthShare. Like you send them the receipt and they, they pay you back. The reason that we got off of it, honestly, number one, no one knows what it is. No medical billing specialist knew what it was. We, we always had to explain what this program was. We never had a doctor turn us away for it, but I have heard of that happening, saying they don't take patients that don't have health insurance. But yeah, it got to be a hassle just like spending 20 minutes explaining it every time you wanted to engage in like a healthcare purchase. And also Liberty was very popular in 2018 and it took a really long time to get some stuff reimbursed. I mean, we had one bill that I think we waited eight months oh, wow. to get re- reimbursed for. And it wasn't big, but you know, $500 can make or break a monthly budget if you're on a tight budget. So this year for the first six months, we went back on a healthcare.gov plan, high deductible, et cetera. And it was $961 a month for a family of three. So double what we were paying. And this was with no subsidies or anything, just the regular market rate. And now in Wyoming, we're on a short-term plan. And I don't know how long we're going to keep doing this. And what is a short-term plan for those who don't know? Okay. So short-term plans vary state to state by whether you're allowed to use them or not. Essentially, it's a plan that's allowed to exclude people who have pre-existing conditions and basically only covers catastrophic events. So number-wise, it works the same as a high-deductible health care plan, where I think our out-of-pocket might be on the order of $13,000 a year for a family of three before the insurance kicks in. It's not eligible for an HSA, which killed me, but (laughs) it's only like $230 a month. And when you consider that our our typical healthcare expenses are under $2,500 a year as far as actually going and paying, and we know what the full freight prices are because we have been on these high deductible plans and and Liberty before. So the short-term health insurance plans, we were not allowed to have them in Oregon right? It's one of those consumer protection things where they say, we don't trust most of the residents in Oregon to read the fine print on how these things work. So we're, we're going to ban these. And my husband and I are like, that's ridiculous. We, we know how to do our homework. We know how to read the fine print and what's covered and what's not. We want to find a plan that matches our needs and what we use health insurance for. So that was a big plus of coming to Wyoming is being able to get on a short-term plan. And I think you can extend them out for about three years. And then at that point, go on a regular healthcare.gov plan again. So one thing that this is a little bit of a a subject change. I mean, that's a, that's an awesome topic. And you really laid out like three versions of healthcare, definitely things I'd never heard of, especially coming from the military where we just have our health insurance paid for us, but a little bit of a subject change. But one thing I'd love to ask, because I think you're in a position that we all hope to be in someday. Cody kind of already is, but where you're you're financially independent and you wake up and you're like, well, that also means I'm location independent. I can live wherever I want to. And you guys went through that and you went to all these different places in the same year testing the waters. Do you have any advice for people who, when they get to that point, not just the pros and cons, but literally like what you did, where you were moving from place to place, like were you just in hotels, were you in like long-term Airbnbs, were you in your camper, like how were you physically moving around and checking out all these places to figure out if you actually want to live there or not? 
Good question. So one of the things we did as far as our research is we took our regular monthly cash flow, you know, budget spreadsheet and adapted it to each of the places that we decided to go visit. So we had one for Carson City, Nevada, and one for Farragut, Tennessee, which is outside of Knoxville. And we said, we, we just picked a house on Zillow and said, these property taxes. We went on healthcare.gov and said, this health insurance premium, et cetera. So we, we knew probably within 5% accuracy of what it would actually cost to live there. And when we decided to go visit, we would take anywhere between three to six days in each place. Our daughter was in preschool. Well, no, sorry. She was in kindergarten. So we could only take off 10 days during the academic year. So we would try to go over holiday weekends if we could. When we went to Nevada, we drove down and stayed in hotels. Um, We would go to playgrounds and talk to anybody who would talk to us. (laughs) We would usually, usually strike up conversations with parents and ask them about schools and if you raise your hand, you'll find a realtor. So it's really easy to to get an idea of what it's like living in the town from the realtors. We had this one thing, we called it the Walmart test, which is, do I, me, you know, Kim, do I feel comfortable and safe and confident going into the Walmart in that town by myself at nighttime? <laughs> wow. And, <laughs> I don't think I would pass that in most places. <laughs> that ruled out a lot of, that ruled out a lot of towns, <laughs> but the, the way I, I like to tell people, Walmart is a mirror of the town. And if you don't like what you see at the Walmart, you're probably not going to like the town. Just so you know, the Walmart in Wyoming is like A+. plus. We have one of those giant two-story robots for online pickup. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a wonderful place. But our Walmart in Orlando, Florida, it was two miles from our house, and a police officer got shot in the parking lot. Oh, so like I said, it's it's a little bit of a mirror of the neighborhood around it. So sometimes we would stay in Airbnbs. When we came to Wyoming, all the hotels were booked because it was college graduation weekend. So we wound up in the only Airbnb in city limits in the basement of these two girls. One of them is a teacher at our daughter's current school. And the other was a PhD student in the program that my husband might apply to. That worked out really, really well. We got a lot of good inside information. So one thing I want to dig into before we get into the last few questions here, just because we are inching up on the end of the podcast episode in terms of timing. And I think the big not elephant in the room, but I'd love to hear, like, I know you're still side hustling. You're still doing the certification stuff. Your husband, you said, is doing consulting. What does your investment strategy or portfolio look like? I can't imagine that you're drawing down like you're moving and doing some kind of Roth conversion ladder or anything like that since you're still earning plenty of money to live. But what's just your whole, if you could give us like a thousand foot view of your investment strategy and what your portfolio looks like. So we're pretty traditional fire investors as far as following the 4% rule to determine what our number is. We made a couple of tweaks in there as far as saving separately for college and things like that. We like index funds. We've never owned a single company stock. So, you know, we we prefer Vanguard. I love them. I'm really big on customer service. I love working with them and calling them up and they can do anything over the phone. It's amazing. We both have 401ks through our small businesses, plus the 401ks from our day jobs that we quit. We have traditional IRAs, Roth IRAs, separate investment account with the savings to 
begin the five-year conversion when we finally do decide to do that. But as far as when we'll actually draw down, I, I don't even know. I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's that kind of thing, like you race to the finish line and then you start to get close and you're like, well, there's a couple things going on here, right? I, I'm enjoying work. I'm liking it more than I thought. It's making more money than I thought. And maybe I want to spend a little bit more than I'd originally planned, right? Maybe I want to plan a couple of couples only trips or, you know, more date nights or just things like that. More summer camps. I don't know. To have a little bit more flexibility. So I will tell you, it feels really good to, when you have the pressure taken off of you, number one, for having a mortgage. When that mortgage is paid off and that huge several thousand dollar a year weight is off your shoulders, suddenly it's a lot easier to get comfortable with the idea of working part-time or working for yourself. And another thing, I guess the second stage of like financial relief is when you reach your coast fire number, right? When you, when you get to the point where you say, I don't need to work to save for retirement anymore. Like right now I can just work for the lulls, right? <laughs> I like that. So the last thing I would like to ask is, I, it just because it comes up so often with the stock market being so high right now, obviously you just kind of getting to this point where you're stepping away from traditional work, but you have these great, you know, income generating, if you want to even call them side hustles, I mean, they're so profitable that it's, I don't, you know, that's really your job. And, but if you decided to completely step away from all of it, you've got your nest egg and we do see a huge correction. How easy is it for you just to jump back in and start up these businesses that you have going now? Would it be something that you could step away from for, say, two, three years and then just jump back into it one day? Absolutely. So my husband, he took a year off, right? And he had headhunters contacting him from his previous day job trying to recruit him to come back. And he would say, you know, I just left there, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm probably still on the email server. <laughs> I was just there. So I would say that, you know, we both have certifications in our niche fields that if we maintain those, then yeah, jumping back in isn't a super hard thing to do. In my field, particularly, a lot of people take breaks. They'll take a year off with a baby or they'll take two years off and go back to grad school. And when I say they take time off, what that means is they dial down to maybe 100 hours a year to maintain the credentials. Kind of like nursing, there's, there's a minimum that you have to do to keep your license. So we do the continuing ed to keep our professional engineering licenses and professional certifications and things. And it's not something I'm afraid of, I guess. And, you know, there's so many options for other things we could do, especially since our spending is hovers around $40,000 a year, including fluff. So if it was a down year and we were living on our investments, we'd probably just cut out some of that fluff, <laughs> <laughs> right? We've got a couple other options. You know, both of us have the option of going back for PhDs and studying engineering more. So it's not something that keeps me up at night, I guess. 
All right, so Kim, it's been a lot of fun kind of going through the techniques of retiring. We haven't really done an episode like this where we really dig into like what the actual steps are when you're kind of leaving a traditional job and going into early retirement, like geo arbitrage, picking where you live, health insurance, figuring out a drawdown strategy. I know you haven't started drawing down yet, but you might in the future, as you were saying. If people want to follow along, get a little piece of your journey, learn more about you guys, the frugal engineers, where is the best place they can do that? So we have thefrugalengineers.com. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter. One thing that we did on our website is we put the mortgage payoff spreadsheet that we created for our own house. We put it up there. So it's it's free if you sign up. And yeah, we talk about all kinds of topics. I'm, I'm writing a report right now about our first month in Wyoming. And holy crap, how did we spend more than $10,000 in a month? I thought we were frugal. <laughs> All right. And so the the next question we always ask is, what is that one tangible tip for people who are on their path to financial independence that you'd like to give them? I've had this talk with a lot of my friends in real life who are engineers and they are in that full-time environment and they're looking for a change, right? But they don't even know where to start and they don't know what options are out there. So my number one recommendation is like step zero, know your spending, track it, you know, whether you're using an online service like a mint, or if you're just using spreadsheets or whatnot, know how much you're spending, because that's how much you need to live off of. Right. And if you don't know that, if you don't know how much you need to live, then you don't know how much you need to work and how much longer you need to work. And I think a lot of people get comfortable just like I was in college, like, if you're making enough every month, you don't really need to track your spending. And for a lot of engineers and professionals, that's the case, right? Absolutely. You need to know what you're spending. Know how much you need to keep earning if you decide to go part-time or freelance. And I totally agree. I think tracking your spending is one of the most important things in personal finance and financial independence. But the most important thing is the question that's coming up. That is the <laughs> wild card question. And oh, Kim, no. <laughs> you have no idea what's coming. Justin's laughing. He has no idea what's coming. I'm rattling my brain right now. Kim, are you ready for this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I know you and your husband both have certifications. And as Justin had asked you before, you could easily kind of hop back into that job if you took two or three years off, as long as those certifications stay up to date. But I want to hear, like, there must be some dream job that you've had since a little girl. You've always wanted to do X. I know you're at the point now, you're at kind of coast fire where you could literally go do anything in the entire world. It's cheating if you say your current job. What job would you pick if you could pick any job in the whole world? Uh, group fitness instructor. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and why aren't you doing that right now? <laughs> well, I, I did it for a couple of years when we lived in Florida. And then when we moved, they didn't have it at my gym anymore. They didn't have that that class at my gym. So I, it's on my list to do it here. They have some really fun classes and I've met some great women through the programs and it's definitely not a job you can retire on, <laughs> but it's a great job to retire to. Ari Kim, thanks again for coming on the show. This is a great episode. I wish you all the best luck in your new journey into financial independence. And yeah, I'm looking forward to keeping up with your journey myself on your website and uh, just thanks for coming on. Thank you. man, Justin, another great episode. And they really showcased how you can engineer your early retirement. No pun intended. <laughs> I mean, the first thing I want to talk about real quick, the reason why I like this episode is this was Kim's first podcast ever. And she did a great job. 
And it's just cool to get to cover a story that you for sure haven't heard somewhere else. And it's a very relatable story. I mean, yes, she has retired early, but she didn't do it in any kind of crazy fashion. She did it in the more traditional, kind of like the way people who get introduced with Mr. Money Mustache, you know, where you just, you work a job, it's got a good salary, you save a good rate, and you hit financial independence. But then she also threw in a pretty awesome side hustle. Yeah, one of the things I really liked is that, like, nobody's perfect. And she talked about her mindset, Justin, when you asked her specifically, like, can you go back to early Kim? Like, what in the heck were you thinking when you're racking up all this credit card debt, just living that YOLO lifestyle, do whatever the heck you want? And I know a lot of people who have the same mentality. They're like, you know what? I might only be making like 20K a year now, but in a few years, I'm going to be making 75K a year. I'm going to wipe out all this debt that I'm incurring right now. And it just kind of perpetuates forever. So they think they can just keep racking up all these bills, all these bills, and all of a sudden they'll get this magic salary that wipes it away, but it just doesn't happen like that. And it took Kim incurring quite a bit of debt for her to actually figure that out. Absolutely. And I mean, she also talked about that it was even more than just, hey, I know I want to make money in the future. It was it was about rewarding herself. It was about how she had kind of grinded through three years of college and was taking some time off and rewarding herself. And I think the longer you kind of go down this path, you realize that those rewards are fleeting because they have damaged you so much at the same time. So like, yes, it was fun to do this for a little bit, but then when you look back at how much damage you've done, now you're just stressed out all over again because of the debt that you took on. And so it was a net negative. Like it actually wasn't a good experience. It wasn't a relief. It wasn't a vacation. She obviously turned that around. And I mean, part of that was kind of the relationship she was in, which, you know, sometimes those type of uh, changes in your life come based on changing out friend groups for her this time it was it was meeting her spouse and finding someone who had a little bit different value system and what what was important to them and it was cool to see how she saw how these financial pressures have affected other relationships in her life and how she didn't want to follow in those same footsteps by putting down that mandate of hey you know before we get married i want to be debt free and we're going to start out on a good note And another thing I really liked about this episode was it kind of blended like emotional finance with the actual technical aspects of financial independence. Like I remember when Kim was talking about her spreadsheet, when I built my first spreadsheet, seeing how fast I could retire, I'm like, if I save this percentage of my income, like I can retire in eight years from now. And Kim was showing her husband. And I think at that point they could retire in six years if they kept their spending the exact same and they kept those exact same salaries. So that must've been just like such an exciting moment for those two. And I could literally like feel her excitement when she was talking about it. And then moving forward, she, as a lot of other people in this community do, starts a side hustle, albeit most people don't have side hustles that make $200,000 a year. But Kim does figure out this awesome side hustle within her niche. Her husband also now recently picks up his consulting side hustle. And now they're just on a rocket ship to financial independence. They have location independence. They get to hang out with their daughter. And they're both out earning what they were before at their day jobs. Just an absolutely crazy and inspiring story. But it's not like she came from wealth. It's not like she came from her dad being Dave Ramsey. Maybe that's not a great example. Sorry, Dave. But it's not like she knew all these things starting out. She kind of just went along. She fumbled around a little bit. She finally found her path. And now she's on a rocket ship. Yeah. And I mean, with these side hustles, or if you even want to call them that because they're so high earning that they have, it's obvious that they don't even need to do things like, oh, well, let's try out this different health coverage or let's move to the city that's got better tax implications. I mean, they've got enough money where they don't need to do this. It just shows how like they completely change their values to match this lifestyle. Like there is no reason in wasting money for something that's not adding value. And and they're picking a city that has those things they want. They have the access to the mountains. They have that kind of outdoorsy lifestyle. You know, she mentioned having that Walmart she loves. Like they're not they're not looking at this to to say, let's get rid of things we want. They're just saying, How do we get what we want 
and keep the expenses really low. And yeah, that's just another one of the... Whoa, what was that, Justin? <laughs> it's that call to action, Cody. And this week's call to action is, I think, going to be a fun one for everybody to do. A little exercise to go out and actually punch some numbers in and, and see what, what pops out. So sit down, think about where are the places that you think you want to live, either when you get retired, financially independent, or maybe location independent, or maybe just even moving now. But look at some places where you're thinking about moving to and sit down and actually run those numbers. You know, Kim talked about, okay, this is how much property taxes are. We looked on Zillow and we looked at that. There's a lot of tools out there. You know, we just did a quick Google. There's a website called howmuch.net. Just get on there, punch in uh, some different zip codes and figure out what would your costs look like in different cities. And it may actually change your retirement date. Absolutely. I love that call to action, Justin, because it can make such a massive impact. Like imagine you live in New York City and you're paying, say, $30,000 in property taxes a year. And then you move to a state that has next to nothing property taxes. Like using the 4% rule, like you're saving yourself $750,000 in money that you have to save to retire. Like that's an astronomical number. So I think that's an awesome exercise. And this is something that Kim and her husband actually did. They mapped out, hey, we want a place that's not too hot. We want a place that has this and that and has a good school zone. And then they went and crunched the numbers. So Kim is obviously crushing it. They are both engineering their early retirement, picking exactly how they want to live, what they want to do every day, where they want to live, how they want their daughter to be raised. And if you want to follow along with more of her story, see some of the stuff we talked about, see some of these websites that Justin and I were just referring to, you can visit the show notes at thefiveshow.com slash Kim. And if you want to join one of the most exclusive, riveting, awesome Facebook groups on the internet that Justin and I are both in, you can interact with us. You can share your comments, feedback, questions, ask us anything you want. You can do that at thefyshow.com slash community. And as always, if you've been enjoying the show, please drop us that five-star rating and review. Really helps us out. Let's us know, hey, Justin and Cody, you guys are doing a great job. We love listening every week. And it just gives us that motivation. And it also brings on awesome guests and people that you might not have ever even heard from before, like Kim. Like Justin said, this is her first podcast. She absolutely crushed it. And it's great to hear a new story and one that other people can resonate with. So thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show.